Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Captain, my captain, Imran Khan languishes in a dank C-class dungeon in Fort Atok in Rawalpindi. But it could get even worse. People are saying that his life is now in grave danger. His, even his lawyers are being harassed, chased and disappeared. And one of the relatives of his main lawyer has been murdered. This dark, fascistic shadow that hangs over a British Commonwealth country is actually being directed from Mayfair and the mansions of central London. We'll be talking to a celebrated, yes, celebrated British diplomat, His Excellency, the Honourable Craig Murray, about Britain's role in this perfidious affair. And Cuckoo Kachoo, he is the bagman. Yes, a man I scarcely knew a couple of weeks ago is now locked in a battle with me, which may reach the high courts in uh, the former British colony of Nigeria. We'll be talking to one of Nigeria's finest sons, one of its most educated erudite and eloquent spokespeople. So naturally, he's living in exile. About the man who carried the bag with the swag from the heroin trade in Chicago all the way to the president's house in Abuja. You couldn't make it up, but along the way, it appears he stole the election. Also, even worse than carrying swag in a bag for the drug dealers in Chicago, Illinois. It's all coming up over the next two hours. Make sure you get your calls in early because, well, we expect to be swamped tonight. Last week, 2,166,000 people watched all or part of the mother of all talk shows. It's going to be even bigger this week. Fasten your seatbelts. It's the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Oh, and will Donald Trump fight the next presidential election from inside a jail cell? Well, I mean, if Tinubu can become the president of Nigeria, having had to hand over hundreds of thousands of dollars to the authorities in Chicago in confiscation because, well... It was drug money. The clue was the trail of Colombian white marching powder that trailed from the bag all the way to the bank. Why can't Donald Trump run for president in the United States 
from inside prison. They've now hit him with more than 77 indictments, which, if convicted on all of them, would see him serve not just the rest of his life in jail, but, well, you get me. It would be the youngest person watching this would still be in jail by the end of that term. We've got a poll running on it. Will Trump fight the 2024 election from a prison cell? It's a simple binary question, yes or no, but people are rather divided on it. 12,267 people have voted so far. Make sure you get your vote in before the end of the show. And will Rishi Sunak be sunk by the dinghies, those that themselves sink and those that land? 100,000 people have illegally crossed into the United Kingdom across the French Channel. Yes, I call it the French Channel because, well, they seem to be ruling the waves there. Despite however money the British government has handed over to make them stop, they keep on coming. And the farce of these uh, huge barges on which they were supposed to be housed in lieu of being put up at the taxpayer's expense in Britain forever, perhaps at the cost of £75 per night per person, seven days a week. Nice work if you're a hotelier chosen for one of those gigs, despite the barges that were purchased expensively and controversially installed off our shore. Well, none of them are working First, because the people who came across the channel in a dinghy expressed their fear of living on water. And secondly, you couldn't make this one up. Within two days of the use of one of them, an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease suddenly turned the whole thing toxic and the hoteliers are rubbing their hands in glee. But we'll be concentrating on two main subjects tonight. First of all, Captain My Captain, Imran Khan, the distinguished Pakistani cricket captain, one of the greatest all-round cricketers of all time, maybe the greatest, and a man who clawed his way up in the jungle of Pakistani politics and became, well, a much-loved premier. I can say that because all polling indicates the Imran Khan remains even now overwhelmingly the most popular of the Pakistani leaders. But then some of those uh, who may well emerge as prime minister after the elections scheduled now for November, but likely to be delayed, are polling at 3% amongst the public. They were, of course, as we said at the time, and now vindicated, installed in an American regime change operation. And most of them were swept off the front page of the Police Gazette. They were in exile in London, enjoying their ill-gotten gains, facing charges for grand larceny, for the theft from the public purse and the extortion of private corporations in Pakistan of hundreds of millions of dollars, actually more than $1 billion dollars when you count all the indictments up. They were picked up by the Americans 
and their British satraps and taken to Islamabad and installed in Imran Khan's stead. They will have no credibility, even if they win the elections in November or whenever they are held. No one will give these elections any credibility. An election without uh, Imran Khan is Hamlet without the prince. But these people care not for the collapsing credibility of their so-called democratic credentials. And this is, of course, true throughout the Western world and in the countries that still follow the Western model. They get all high and mighty, you see, about the question of democracy, which is where I came in on the Nigeria ECOWAS issue. Now, I'm not an expert on Nigeria. I was vaguely aware that uh, Tinubu had been elected as the president of Nigeria and that there was a dispute about it that was going to the courts. I shrugged that off thinking, well, that is par for that particular course. But when I heard him preaching about the sacredness of democracy and free and fair elections in relation to his neighbor Niger, when I heard him as a saint, like Saint Francis of Assisi, talking about the absolute unacceptability of people coming to power in an African country, other than, by implication, like him, through a pristine election system, I began to look more closely at him. That's when I discovered he was the bad man. Yes, he literally carried a bag of hundreds of thousands of dollars of drug money in Chicago. He should have gone to prison, but instead he just gave the feds the money. Now, Okay, that's a common or garden story in Chicago, which in the time of Al Capone and in the time of Joe Biden is a criminal hellhole presided over by Joe Biden's party for the best part of 100 years. It kind of happens. But when I began to think, how does a man who's a bag man for organized crime in Chicago end up in the president's house in Abuja. How does that happen? Well, I then discovered that probably it didn't happen at all. That not only was he a bad man for the mafia, he also stole the election in Nigeria. Now, even then, it was not my intention to get locked into a confrontation with him. I have many, many uh, fish to fry. I have many, many conflicts, countries, issues to cover. And then I discovered that not one, but two of the main newspapers in Nigeria carried an op-ed in the name of a Mr. Ono and by golly, will he be saying, oh no, by the time I'm finished with him, which was the most fantastically 
defamatory, baseless, twisted piece of journalism about me I have ever read, and believe me, I've read plenty. Not only was it littered with absolute falsehoods, it contained a spectacular invention which will cost Mr. Ono very dearly in the courts in Nigeria if those courts are still operating, as I believe they are. I believe that there continues to be a judicial system in Nigeria. And therefore, I have sought and will instruct this week solicitors in Nigeria against Mr. Ono's defamations and against the newspapers Vanguard and Guardian in Nigeria. Who is Mr. Ono? I hear you ask. Well, he was only the presidential spokesman to the bagman, President Tinibu. Are you with me here? I hope you'll follow me all the way through the legal process that I am about to embark upon. But much more important than trying to steal my name and reputation, this gang around Tinubu have stolen the great African colossus of Nigeria, the most important country on the continent, the most wealthy and developed country on the continent, the most strategically significant country on the continent. And then I began to look at all the other things that Tinubu could have had on his plate to deal with rather than threatening to invade his little neighbor, Niger. His little neighbor, Niger, had only overthrown a corrupt puppet president who presided over this dichotomy, which is the dichotomy that afflicts much, most of the continent of Africa. One in three light bulbs burning in Paris this evening is powered by the uranium dug from the earth in Niger, but 80% of the people in Niger have no electricity. Keep that dichotomy in your mind because it is that that is fueling the anti-Western, anti-colonial, anti-imperialist struggle that is suddenly sprouting everywhere in Africa and in Latin America, and one day also in Asia. They're not going to put up with it anymore. Countries that literally looted them even of their own people as slaves, took over their countries and ran their own national flags up over them, and then when forced by circumstance or struggle to formally give up their colonies, they insisted on continuing colonization, domination, exploitation of their former colonies. And the people are not prepared to put up with it anymore. And that's all that's happened in Niger. You don't have to like the general that's taken over. 
You don't have to know anything about Nisha, as most of you do not. All you need to know is that the wretched of the earth, as Franz Fanon called them, are rising up and are taking back that which is theirs and which has been taken from them, withheld from them for so many decades by Europeans and now by extension by North Americans. They're not going to put up with it anymore and it will be two steps forward, one step back. Some guys you'll like, some guys you won't. But you have to know that the days when France and Britain and the United States could dictate what happens in Africa and elsewhere in the world are well and truly over. I've said to you before, why is it a surprise that most people in the world, the overwhelming majority of people in the world, do not hate those that we in Britain and the United States and Canada and France are told to hate? When will people grasp that it's our leaders, our rulers, that people hate? As Nelson Mandela said when he was released after 27 years in the dungeons of apartheid, an apartheid supported until the last possible minute by France, Britain, and the United States. Don't forget ever that I was there in Parliament when Mrs. Thatcher's lips moved and she described Mandela as nothing but a common terrorist. I saw her say it. I heard the words tumble from her lips. As Nelson Mandela said when he was finally released, your enemies are not our enemies. Many of your enemies are our friends who stood by us when we needed them, who gave us diplomatic support and recognition, who gave us even the weapons of liberation war. Don't ask us to hate people like Russia, like Libya under Gaddafi, these are the people that made our freedom possible while you were on the other side of the equation. Let me turn quickly and for a couple of minutes only to Pakistan. I've been through this picture before. I struggled against the execution of the late Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. I struggled to have released from prison and then received at Heathrow Airport Mr. Bhutto's daughter, the late Benazir, stick thin, still bleeding from her ears from the brute treatment she suffered in prison after the assassination, judicial assassination of her father. I watched as she was murdered in real time on television. My dear friend, I watched her 
being murdered on television. I've seen generals come and go, spending out, eking out the rest of their lives in luxury. In Mayfair, it's always Mayfair. I saw Nawaz Sharif, Shabazz Sharif. I used to meet Shabazz Sharif in the coffee shops of Edgware Road, where he lived in exile rather well. And now he's the Prime Minister of Pakistan. But Nawaz Sharif remains in Britain. He remains in the Park Lane environs. He remains in Mayfair. But he is dictating everything that happens to Imran Khan. So I'll be asking Ambassador Craig Murray in just a few minutes' time, talk about not letting go of your former colonies. We give a well-upholstered exile to tyrants, thieves on the run, so that they can put behind bars and maybe take the life of a revered, much-loved, real Prime Minister in Pakistan by the name of Imran Khan. It's all coming up over the next one hour and 39 minutes now, so stay tuned. This is the mother of all talk shows. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Will Trump fight the 2024 election from a prison cell? It's simple, yes or no. You can get your vote in, have your voice heard on my Twitter, on my Telegram, t.me forward slash George Galloway, on uh, the YouTube community poll and on the YouTube stream. So far, uh, it's not that close, but it's closer than most of our polls normally are. But at the moment, most of you think that Trump will not fight the election from a prison cell. If you think differently, then get your vote in over the course of the show. Here are the phone numbers. If you want to comment on what I've said or what I should have said, then this is the number to call. If you're in the UK or Ireland, remember it's free of charge. 
The number is 0808196552. That's 0808196552. If you're in the US or Canada and it's equally toll free, it's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. And if you're in the rest of the world, which let's face it, most of you are, it's four four two zero three nine double six two six two five. Now, His Excellency, the Honourable Craig Murray, is always the man to turn to for an informed and educated take on contemporary events. My eye was caught just over the last couple of days when he highlighted the fact that not only is Imran Khan being witch-hunted, perhaps, and perchance, God forbid, to death, but even his lawyers are being chased and arrested. And one of the relatives of his main lawyer was murdered by assailants working in the interests of the banana regime that has been installed at the top of Pakistan by the United States, closely followed by the UK. Now, Mr. Murray was, of course, a British ambassador of note. So I wanted to ask him just exactly what role Britain might be playing in all of this. And he kindly agreed to appear and talk with me about it. Honorable Craig Murray, it's normal for ex-colonial countries to try and keep their hand in, as it were. France is the exemplar in that. But here we have a situation where criminals on the run are actually organizing criminal acts in Pakistan from the rather sumptuous surroundings of London's Mayfair. Why is our foreign office, our government permitting this well, I think um, if the British government seriously attempted to stop people who had looted wealth from overseas uh, investing that money in the London property market and uh, in London equities and from living here, uh, then it would have uh, a profound uh, effect on the economy of the super wealthy in London uh, because, of course, it's it includes our ex-colonies, but it's not not only our ex-colonies. London is a great uh, repository of looted wealth. Though in in the case of um, ex-colonies, of course, there are uh, historic links that the uh, uh, those who are the post-colonial ruling elite uh, installed or approved by the British uh, very often you know, attend British Public schools, of course, members of the military uh, attend Sandhurst. Um, so those links remain very, very real. And, and we're seeing it um, actively in Pakistan as we speak, where not only Sharif, but you know, several of his uh, uh, ministerial colleagues moved from comfortable exile in the UK uh, to take over government in, in uh, Pakistan. But I think we shouldn't be distracted too much by the smoke and mirrors of the the social interactions and, and ex-colonial links uh, of the UK. It's really the United States which is calling the shots. And as as always, the UK is a kind of facility uh, 
uh, being used by the United States, but, but not much more than that, really. Now, Imran Khan is in a very dire situation. Uh, he's being held in prison, more or less incommunicado. His own lawyers have not been able to talk with him, and even those lawyers now are under severe threat of violence, even death. Uh, what can you tell us, uh, or what can you speculate about what they have in mind for Prime Minister Khan? Well, obviously, they feel they've achieved um, their immediate objective, which is to keep him out of the forthcoming elections, because uh, he remains um, every opinion poll that's been able to be taken of any credibility shows him remaining as the most popular politician in Pakistan and shows that his party uh, would actually increase its vote uh, at the next election uh, and, and quite possibly um, uh, push up to war over the 40% mark uh, and certainly be able to get a um, majority in the assembly. So they're desperate, of course, to stop him from competing in a democratic election. And they'll feel that they have achieved that with this five-year ban from politics, uh, which they've uh, imposed. Of course, his lawyers are trying to uh, appeal to the High Court and, and perhaps eventually to the Supreme Court. Um, and that is one reason why his lawyers are being so harassed. They're not being allowed to meet with or, or, or consult with their client. Their offices are being raided. Their, their homes are being smashed up. Uh, they're under extreme personal threat, and uh, in one case at least, um, members of their own family uh, have been murdered in, you know, in suspicious circumstances, in, in ways that make us think that this may very well be linked to the, to the regime. So the, uh, the Pakistani government is desperate to keep him out of the, uh, out of the elections. And of course, it, it should be stated, but I think um, there is no doubt whatsoever that these charges of corruption are uh, ridiculous in the Pakistani context. Um, Imran Khan, there are many things you can say about Imran. There are things you can say against um, Imran. There are very many good things about the man. Uh, but one thing he is not is corrupt. This is a man who has actually given the majority of his personal wealth to found three hospitals uh, in Pakistan, um, you know, he is not somebody uh, who's going to spend his time trying to grub uh, a three Rolex watch from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia or something along those lines. You know, these charges relating to gifts. When you compare them to the massive looting of the Pakistani state carried out by the Sharif family over the years, uh, these charges are perfectly ridiculous. How credible will elections be? without Imran Khan and his people on, on, on the ballot paper? Or do they not care how credible they are? I think they don't really care. And nor, of course, uh, does the world community. I, I mean, it is just simply astonishing how little uh, publicity there's been for what has happened in, in Pakistan, where the you know democratically elected prime minister has been jailed. And not only that, but literally thousands of his supporters are in jail, thousands of people. And these are mostly middle-class people uh, who in many cases are quite new to, to politics. Um, 
And there's almost silence. Yet Pakistan is a country of a quarter of a billion people and a, and a country which has a massive diaspora and particularly a massive diaspora uh, in the United Kingdom, but also a massive diaspora in other places like the Gulf states, for example, in Australia, in many countries, in the United States even. Um, it's very hard to understand the complete reaction. And, and you compare uh, this lack of reaction to what happens when uh, you know, a French puppet is deposed in Niger, uh, which, which, ha- which is, um, you know, a far smaller country in terms of population with, with far less connection to the West. Um, and yet that has received 10 times of publicity uh, as effectively the coup in Pakistan. It's very, very difficult to understand this. And as I know you have experienced yourself, um, I've never seen social media suppression like this. Uh, and we, we're getting used to social media suppression. But around events in Pakistan, it is really quite extreme and, and extraordinary. I can't understand it either. And both of us have experienced it. Uh, we opine on all kinds of things. Uh, on, on Niger and Nigeria, for example. Perhaps I shouldn't, uh, 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 I shouldn't mention it in case it comes to pass, but I, I'm reaching millions of people talking about Niger and a few hundreds talking about Pakistan. Now, we both remember the time uh, when Imran Khan was never out of the newspapers in Britain, N- not just as a, a politician, but as a former playboy, as a, a, a wonderful ace cricketer, uh, as a, a personality, a celebrity. And yet here he is now in prison on trumped-up charges, and not only can you not get anything into the mainstream media about it, if you do a video on it, only a few hundred, tiny number of thousands of people will be allowed to see it. So somebody is telling are the social media companies to suppress news about Pakistan. Who could that be? And what would be their reasons? And why are the social media companies complying with it? It's, it's astonishing, isn't it? The, the only thing I've seen on this scale was the, the Hunter Biden laptop story during the American presidential election campaign, where the uh, all social media were told by the FBI directly to downplay or, or, or stop uh, circulation of comment on the Hunter Biden laptop and were, of course, told it was fake. And it was a Russian fake in particular, which turns out it's now admitted to be completely untrue. Everybody now knows that was not a fake and the Hunter Biden laptop was entirely genuine. But in that case, and of course, uh, the Twitter files were released uh, and uh, Zuckerberg has confirmed it's also true of Facebook. It was directly the FBI itself directly intervening with the senior management of the uh, social media organizations. And it must be something like that again. I, I, it, it has to be something of that order, um, w- which gives you some idea of the priority that the United States had given to getting rid of Imran Khan. And of course, we have to remember why he he not only campaigned against drone operations in pakistan he stopped drone operations in pakistan and he stopped american military operating out of pakistan uh he 
moved to get his oil supplies from Russia instead of from the Gulf states and moved to stop paying for oil in dollars. He refused to back uh, motions at the United Nations uh, supporting the United States' position on Ukraine. Um, so, you know, here you have this person who had a very strong international profile, as you say, uh, and a high degree of international credibility, while a person uh, widely appreciated and looked up to in the developing world, um, who was seen as a threat to the United States. And they've managed to get rid of him uh, and to do so quietly. And they they do look very much like they're, they're hoping he's in terrible conditions at Attic Jail. They're, they're quite possibly hoping to actually kill him off in jail. Um, and that requires maximum suppression. That is the only thing that explains the extreme degree of suppression of this story. When I saw the accusation against him that he had been aggressively neutral, uh, I recalled uh, the basis on which the so-called Labour Foreign Secretary Jack Straw dismissed you from your last ambassadorial post when he said you had overly focused on human rights. Uh, it, it was of that level of absurdity. Who can be aggressively neutral? <laughs> yes, that's really quite quite extraordinary. And of course, um, in a way, this is meant to be a example uh, to other leaders that if you don't jump when the United States has jumped, uh, when the United States insisted in public that Pakistan vote uh, for a motion condemning Russian action in Ukraine, uh, Imran Khan replied saying, are we slaves? Are we slaves? Um, and you know, the Americans can't stand people turning around to them and saying, are we slaves? Because the truth hurts, uh, and the truth is they do treat the developing world like slaves. They don't accept the developing world has a right uh, to its own opinion, to its own ideas, um, and to an anti-imperial, um, anti-colonial background or you know, way of thinking. Um, so I, I, th I think there, there are deep lessons here in the treatment of Imran Khan. It's not a kind of one-off episode. Your Excellency, as always, fascinating. Thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. The Honourable Craig Murray, former British ambassador on Imran Khan and Pakistan, colonialism, imperialism, Britain and the United States. I'm sure that you will want to have your say on these matters. If you're in the UK or Ireland, it's 0808196552. If you're in the US or Canada, it's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. If you're in the rest of the world, it's four four two zero three nine double six two six two five. At the uh, other end of the hour, we'll be talking Nigeria, and it will be your calls right up until the hour after this very short break. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, our podcast just reached number two in Nigeria. Here's a prediction. 
it'll be number one after tonight's show. Uh, Kevwe Abenabi uh, says, hey, Nigerians, let's beat the algorithm. Like and share. You know what we do best. Let's make this episode go viral for George. Thank you very much. David Hundian is an award-winning investigative journalist and the founder of West Africa Weekly. And he joins us now. David, thank you for joining us. One of the more anticipated interviews uh, of the mother of all talk shows. Thank you for agreeing to uh, talk with us. We wanted to get your in-depth analysis uh, of the situation in Nigeria. But first, uh, can you clear something up? Uh, Was I unfair on Tinubu when I described him as a bag man? Um, I actually think you didn't you didn't go far enough. Um, so as as you may know, um, I'm the journalist who is basically responsible for putting this story out um, into the the public domain. Uh, more recently, there was a story that I published last year on this issue, which um, became the basis for all of this. Um, and in that story, the headline of the story is actually from drug lord. To presidential candidates, I describe him as a drug lord. I think that's a, that's a fair description based on the evidence that is available. So, calling him a bad man is actually a bit tame because um, it it kind of it implies that there is still some sort of separation between him and the drug trade. That okay, he wasn't actually directly involved in handling heroin; he just handled the money. But actually, um, that's not what the evidence says at all. If you actually read through the court papers, it becomes very clear that this person was intimately involved in the heroin trade in Chicago. For whatever reason, um, the US authorities have chosen to sit on their hands. And I, I guess we'll come to that later in the show anyway. Yes, uh, so how does such a man, even if he was just a bag man, uh, but worse if he was more, how does such a man end up as the president of a mighty country like Nigeria? Um, short answer, um, he doesn't, or he's not supposed to. Um, but I guess we live in very um, unusual times. Um, we live in a time when it's it's become um, increasingly clear that certain countries, i.e. the US, um, are becoming more and more brazen about their willingness to basically set everyone else on fire to keep themselves warm. So in this case, it is increasingly evident if you've read, if you've read my story, if you watch my documentary, if you read the reporting by Kids, uh, Kids uh, Karenberg of of Grey Zone News, if you've seen, if you if you read the court documents, if you've done your research, it becomes very clear that this person, who is supposedly sitting in Asorok as the president of, Niger- of Nigeria, isn't actually working for Nigeria. We essentially have a U.S. intelligence asset um, occupying the office. Of Nigeria's president and the U.S. authorities are well aware of of his history, of his past. Um, they're actual. I personally am involved in at least two legal processes as we speak, trying to um, force the U.S. authorities to make the contents of his FBI his FBI file public because there is an FBI file on him, and we get tossed around a lot. Oh, um, due to privacy concerns. Uh, we're not going to let you have this information. And it's like, well, this is the president of a sovereign country. So I think we're, we're well past the point of you know, invoking privacy concerns now because the foreign policy decisions 
or the local policy decisions made by this guy um, potentially affect the lives of 200 million people, even more, as we're seeing now in the case of a war with Niger, which is determined to have potentially an entire quarter of Africa could be going up in flames because you essentially, we essentially have a president whom, first of all, was never qualified to run for that office, should never have been on that ballot, legally speaking. And most importantly, we did not vote for him. He did not win the election. And based on the, the data that the U.S. government itself paid for, the polls that the U.S. government itself, uh, the pre-election uh, polling and research the U.S. government itself paid for, based on the reports that, 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 that were put out by the EU Observer Commission, it's evidence, it's visible to the blind and audible to the deaf. And not only did this guy not win the election, he wasn't even close. And yet, some of these um, powerful countries, shall we say, have simply decided that, look, we have foreign policy objectives, we have foreign policy goals, and one of these goals is, for whatever reason, to keep our thumb on West Africa. And the way to keep our thumb on West Africa is to ensure that whoever is in power in Nigeria is someone who is completely supine, completely pliable, someone who essentially can be blackmailed, because that's, 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 how, that's my reading of the situation. So essentially right now, um, Nigeria is sovereign in name, but we are essentially under under some sort of foreign occupation. That's that's the way I see it, because the person who is wielding the powers of state as president is not working in the interests of the country. He's not working for us. We didn't put him there. We didn't vote for him. And he's not answering to us. He's answering to Paris. He's answering to DC, you know, London to a lesser extent. He's answering to everyone except us, the 200 million people of Nigeria. So where does that leave us? I mean, who knows? Well, is there uh, <laughs> extant uh, a legal system in Nigeria that is at least uncompromised to the extent that they will do their duty and reverse what is clearly a, a kangaroo hijacking of the presidency of a great uh, country? Uh, I mean, the ballot rigging and, and all the rest, all of this is in court. The man, Mr. Obi, who came second, uh, he's pursuing it. Is there any chance of judicial uh, resolution of this matter? Or are the people going to have to take to the streets? Um, so I don't, I don't believe that the Nigerian judiciary actually has it in them. And the reason I say I don't, I don't believe it is... It's more than just, it's much more than just the case of ballot rigging, right? This will be the first Nigerian election to be rigged. The issue here is over and above that, there is a surplus of evidence that makes it very clear that this person should never even have been on the ballot. This is someone whose university uh, degree certificates submitted to the Electoral Commission are obvious forgery. It's an obvious forgery. I did a story on this in November. It is, it's such an obvious forgery. You can actually trace where it came from. It came from a cheap online forgery service called diplomamakers.com. Right? This degree certificate has grammatical errors on it. Right? Uh, we, we took the extraordinary step of actually uh, submitting a, a subpoena to the supposed university he went to, Chicago State University, for the records of this person known as Bola Tinubu. And the, the results that came back were total variance with the things that he submitted to INEC. He submitted a bunch of forgeries, right? So there's there's controversy over even the basic identity of this person, 
right? We have an actual criminal here. And this isn't something we just came to light recently. This is something which as far back as last year, when I did a story on this, this actually went to court. We actually took this to the federal high court in Abuja that this is a national security problem here. We essentially have someone who we don't even know who this person is, right? We All we know about this person is this person used to be a drug dealer. Somehow or the other bought his way into the Nigerian political mainstream. And somehow this person is about to contest an election on the platform of the ruling party. And here is evidence suggesting that this person has committed all kinds of frauds, committed identity theft. He has submitted forgeries. He has committed multiple perjuries. And what happened was the uh, not a single judge agreed to take on the case. So the case is pretty much just timed out. It just sat at the court. It wasn't assigned to a judge. All the judges ran away. Nobody wanted to touch it. So he ended up running during the election, which he still lost anyway. And then somehow at 4 a.m. when everyone was asleep, he was declared winner. Many of our American audience will be familiar with that phenomenon. Indeed, I'm familiar with it myself uh, in English uh, elections in which I had an interest. Uh, the 4 a.m. Uh, delivery of just enough ballots to win is one issue. But as you say, that has happened many times in Nigerian politics. I suppose the big question is why the ruling party was reduced to picking him as their nominee. Uh, couldn't they come up with somebody better than him, uh, a drug dealer from Chicago? Well, um, I guess they, they were constrained because the, um, the political deal, if you like, political transaction, which brought the former president, President Buhari, to power, was essentially um, a temporary merger of two remarkably different political formations. So if, if you can think of it in terms of, say, 2010 in the UK, because I was in the UK at the time. So the deal that put the Conservative Party in power, where there was the Conservative power and then there was the, um, I think it was the uh, what it was the independent party what was it called the liberal the uh, the liberal liberal the, democrats the Dems, yeah? Yeah, exactly and no one expected that there would ever be any sort of you know merger between the two but there was a partnership nick Clegg and david cameron and you know the rest is history something similar happened in 2015 where in 2013 actually where the party now known as the apc was sort of cobbled together a loose coalition so it was the cpc which was like a northern a, a northern interest party and then there was the the so-called um uh, acn the action congress which was a more southwestern party these two historically are chalk and cheese but for the purpose of seizing power from the then ruling pdp they sort of cobbled together a coalition and i guess the deal was okay you that's buhari from the cpc you get to rule for eight years right and then after you it's going to be my turn since i'm the one making this possible i'm the one putting up the money because he has endless amounts of money obviously you know we have an idea of where that money comes from um i'm putting up the money i'm making all of this possible i have the the international connections because he's deeply connected with for whatever reason with the um the the democratic uh establishment in the u.s um as if you read my story i'm sure you know he's you know deeply connected with hillary clinton via his good friend Gil uh, gilbert shagari so he has all these international connections. In fact, the um, campaign manager that ran Buhari's campaign in 2015 was none other than David Axelrod, the 
David Axelrod, the same guy who ran Obama's campaign. So he has all these international connections. He has all this money. So he essentially made Buhari the president on the um, assumption that after eight years, it's going to be his turn. And that's exactly what happened. So essentially, um, the entire country of Nigeria, all 200 million human beings, was essentially the subject of a trade between this guy and a political formation in the North. That, okay, if you give me this thing, if you come into the coalition with me, I'm going to let you have eight years. And after that, I get to be president. In fact, it's no coincidence that his his campaign tagline, and this was literal, this is unironical, you can, conf- you can confirm this from any Nigerian you speak to, his campaign tagline was Emilokan, which if you translate that to English, it literally means it's my turn. That was his campaign tagline. <laughs> and you know, that was very unironic. He actually meant that it's his turn. So his entire thing was, well, I gave you people the presidency for eight years. Now it's your it's it's it's, uh, it's your turn to reward me for giving you this thing. So it's my turn, essentially. So that's that's unfortunately that's the level of Nigerian politics. There's no there's no ideology. It's just horse trading, and that's it. Well, uh, that might have uh, succeeded uh, if this new Niger crisis had not erupted, because. Uh, well, quite frankly, uh, if he confines his criminality uh, to uh, robbing the people of Nigeria, that's just a matter for the people of Nigeria. But if he's about to plunge the whole of West Africa into uh, the quagmire, into, into uh, a forest fire that will burn, that becomes an international matter of some importance. Now, why has he chosen to be the spearhead of the obvious French and U.S. attempt to intervene in Niger, even if it means all-out war with Niger, Burkina Faso, uh, with Mali, uh, and who knows where else? And will the Nigerians put up with that? So um, two reasons. First of all, um, internal reasons. Um, under the Nigerian constitution, if if uh, if the country is in a state of war, then the president or the head of state essentially becomes a king. Essentially, it becomes um, impossible to 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 remove the head of state. So there's a as you as you you mentioned, there's a there's a legal process in courts. Um, even though I don't really have faith in the Nigerian judiciary to do the obvious thing, which is to disqualify him, because he clearly should never have been on the ballot. This person is a criminal. But there is there is still a chance that something could happen there. So this could be a method of sort of ensuring that that base is covered, that you know, regardless of whatever decision is arrived at by the courts, that just by the by virtue of being in a state of war, he becomes essentially unremovable, which is permitted by the Nigerian constitution. Um, the second thing is, um, I it's it's clear to anyone who 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 has a, I think a functioning pair of eyes that the the French and the Americans are, for lack of a better term, um, blackmailing him because clearly um, he's not really in control here. If you've if you followed the situation from day one, it's been clear that the decisions that he has made are not the decisions of someone who has actually thought this through. These are the decisions of a puppet who has someone's 
someone's mouth in his ear and someone's hand up his arse, you know, part of my French. So, for example, um, last well, two weeks ago, when this crisis initially erupted, um, under Nigerian law, a, a president is not permitted to deploy the Nigerian military outside of Nigeria without approval from from the Senate, from the parliament. It's not permitted. But he tried to circumvent that. Um, he uh, illegally deployed Nigerian special forces into Niger. And certain people within the Nigerian military actually um, were not on board with this at all. And um, they, they took an unprecedented step, right? They actually leaked a top secret document from the, the defense headquarters to me, right? Bear in mind that I'm, I'm viewed very much as a journalist who is almost like an enemy of state in Nigeria. So for the Nigerian military to actually leak such a document to me, I think that tells you everything you need to know about, you know, how this war is viewed even within the ranks of the Nigerian military. So um, after this document was leaked and I put it out, you know, I was accused of, you know, treason, you're betraying soldiers' locations, you should be picked up, blah, 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 blah. But it achieved, you know, that leak achieved its goal. It actually stopped that illegal invasion. And then he went to the Senate to ask for approval. The Senate turned him down. So now the tactic that has been adopted is to go hide behind ECOWAS and claim that, well, ECOWAS has approved the uh, deployment of this thing called a standby force, right? First of all, who is ECOWAS? ECOWAS is Nigeria, right? So it's like saying, um, I don't know, uh, if, if you're talking about the UK, right, and Say there is a you know something relating to football in the UK, and you say, oh, um, the British thing. No, there's England, which is the, by far the dominant force, and then there's Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. You know, but England is the dominant force. It's a similar thing within ECOWAS. There is no such thing as ECOWAS in this in in the real sense of it. There is Nigeria. Every single time that there has been a military intervention by ECOWAS, it's essentially been the Nigerian military being deployed. So. That's like the latest attempt to sort of end run the refusal by the Nigerian parliament to, to grant him his war because he desperate, obviously desperately wants this war. And the, the sheer amount of desperation that is being, that, that is being displayed here makes it clear to me that this, this isn't something that came out of his own head, right? And the noises coming out of Paris and Washington DC just make this all the more obvious. You know, you essentially have, uh, President Macron. Um, almost issuing edicts, you know, for for many years, yeah. the, the 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 French have sort of tried to mask their openly colonial positioning within West Africa. I, I remember sometime in 2020, I personally even wrote an article in the in uh, the Africa Reports, where I essentially pushed back on the idea that the French have direct colonial um, control of Africa. I, I critiqued the idea, right? Because, you know, based on the understanding that I have there, look, the France of Charles de Gaulle and the France of today are, you know, remarkably different countries. And it, it no longer sort of captures the French public imagination to have Africa under its thumb or anything. So for many years, that's the image that France has tried to curate in Africa. But this time around, it's just, it's shared all pretenses. It's, as I said, visible to the blind and audible to the deaf. It's, it, it's almost like, you know, Macron screaming. At Nigeria, that hey, go get go get me back my territory, you know, and it's like hey, Niger is a sovereign, independent country, isn't it? Or it's supposed to be a sovereign, independent country, isn't it? Why is there this much, you know, angst 
because they essentially said, go home, we don't want you anymore. You know, so it, it's clear that there are outside forces that are not just involved here, but that are actually in control, actually in the driving seat, which puts us Nigerians in a uniquely dangerous situation because as you correctly stated, such a war um, wouldn't just be a problem within, you know, Niger and Nigeria. The entire West African subregion is going to go up in flames. You've mentioned that uh, the Malians, the Burkinabes, the Guineans have already, you know, signaled their, their support for Niger. Algeria has or has already sent a signal that it's going to stand with Niger as well. So potentially, you could end up having an, an entire belt of chaos across the Sahel, right? Sudan is currently in chaos. Um, Ethiopia and Eritrea are currently having issues. And as they're coming west, you're seeing that potential for an entire band of chaos. And the Russians are somewhere in amidst all of this, allegedly, and they also have an interest in this somewhere too. So ultimately, regardless of what happens or does not happen to the US and French interests in the region, we are the ones who are going to suffer the consequences. You know, it's and this is why I, you know, I, 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 I take a sort of personal interest in this issue. This isn't just some airy fairy political discourse, right? This is something that's going to have real on the ground consequences. The Nigerian border with Niger is over a thousand kilometers long. It's the longest single land border that Nigeria has. Um, the distinction between Nigerians and Nigerians is almost impossible to make because again, that border was drawn on Wilhelmstrasse in, in Berlin, right? It, it's not a border that actually makes any sense. It's just a line in the sand that was drawn at the Berlin conference. It's the same people on both sides of the border. And for the most part, it's not even a demarcated border. So if you're going to go to war with a country that you cannot functionally demarcate yourself from, how does that even work in the first place? You know. So ultimately, it's going to devolve into some form of ethnic genocide. But that's almost nailed on guaranteed to happen. And once that starts to happen, the last remaining band of stability in West Africa is going to go. And then you're going to have essentially the entire top half of Africa going from Libya all the way down to the Central African Republic. The entire top half of Africa is going to be one contiguous band of absolute mayhem, right? And that's close to what, three, 400 million people whose lives are going to be thrown into utter chaos. And why? Because the US has a drone base in Agadez or you know France wants to keep on mining uranium in Niger is that worth two or three four hundred million lives I don't think it is which is you know which is why we're having conversations like this because clearly we're not at the point where um the the independence or the sovereignty that we probably thought we had um it's clear that we don't have so maybe I don't know where we're living through the 1960s all over again so maybe there needs to be another pan-African liberation movement. I don't know. But clearly that's the situation we found ourselves in now. We're literally being ruled by a vassal, by an illegitimate vassal who does not answer to us. A vassal who's a bag man, and maybe even worse than that. This is peerless uh, analysis. Uh, for those who are not uh, already following you, and a very large number of people are, uh, what's the best way? Uh, to keep up to date with your thinking, your reportage on this matter. Right. So um, my platform is called West Africa Weekly. So that's um, westafricaweekly.substack.com. Um, I also have a, a documentary channel on YouTube. It's called West Africa Weekly. 
Um, and then you can you can find me on social media. It's just it's my name, David Hundane. It's it's just there. So that's pretty much easy to find. Fantastic. I hope we speak again. Thank you, David, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Daniel in Manchester in England is a Nigerian lawyer and has a point of view on Niger. Uh, go ahead, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hi, George Galloway. How are you? By the grace of God, good. Thanks for calling. Go ahead. All right. So um, it's a shame, really, what's happening in West Africa. It seems to me like uh, the West, uh, which we call Britain and America, are trying to fight a proxy war, a war that cannot be fought in Europe. The war will totally destroy Europe, and they will never recover from it. So uh, what's also shameful is that uh, Nigerians came out full-fledged to vote in the last elections, and um, it's just been swept under the rug again. Everyone's, you know, hosts have been dashed. And um, we all know this president bought the, uh, I mean, his all allegations. I don't want to uh, uh, be too conclusive, but Nigerians are very saddened by the sort of president uh, that has emerged right now. And we all think he's doing the bidding for people who want Africa to always remain in the dark. Because once Africa is in the dark, then that profits, you know, a lot of Western countries, you know. So I think, uh, George, don't don't turn out the torch on Africa, especially West Africa and especially Nigeria. You know, I think uh, if we people keep coming out to condemn the sort of government we have in Nigeria, so, sooner or later, more people will join in that positive struggle. You know, and I, I think uh, we, we should, more of us should come out and condemn uh, the sort of precedent that we have, who's have plutorial uh, 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 cases in America, you know, for, for money laundering and things like that. I mean, you don't have to be convicted. Britain is rule on promise. Once you have a parliamentarian who's uh, in any sort of dirty dealing, the ideal thing for them to do is to resign. They don't continue in that office so as not to put shame on the, on the parliament. So I don't see why we should have uh, this, this, uh, uh, this sort of people coming out to run for president and uh, a lot of idiots supporting him, you know, and uh, putting him on the seat in Astro Rock. It's a shame. I hope Africa will wake up and I shame. hope uh, no, that could succeed because it's for a good cause. And I hope there's no war in West Africa. That's all I have to say. And thank you very much. Well, uh, 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 what you said was extraordinarily powerful and I'm grateful to you. Uh, for it. A question from Dave on email. I'm very curious to hear your view on Victoria Newland. I personally believe she's one of the most dangerous people on the planet right now. Keep up the fantastic work. God bless you and your family. Thank you, Dave. Uh, if uh, uh, I can put it no higher or lower than this, that Victoria Newland is proof positive that Satan is present in the world. Final call, I suspect, from Chidi in South Carolina, but on Niger. Go ahead, Chidi. Thank you so much for putting me on. I just want to talk briefly on. Uh, so thank you so much for um, you know your 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 mother of all talk shows. I've listened to it over over three years. Very very insightful and educative. I want to just make thank this you. contribution towards Nigeria and at large, you know, West Africa. What is going on? Um, I will start with, I know you're not a proponent for breaking up uh, of countries, and you've explained why, and I quite understand. 
But the problem in Africa is that we have to go back to how these countries we are formed and created. You know, different tribes are put together without consulting them. And along the line, in several of these countries, the tribal lines have been used to cause civil wars that have deep-seated, you know, animosity and bitterness. For instance, something like Nigeria. You know, the politics was played and triggered a war that ended up in the genocide against the evil people for about, you know, about almost 3 million, 2.5 million of us. Now we pretend that we've healed and we've moved on from it, which is not the case. So we have just a nation where nobody, there is no commitment. People are not nationalists. We, we ponder to our tribes. And that is why we can never, you can never get the youth to come out and protest. You want to introduce tribal limits, everything collapses. So now people are, because there is something looming like this, like a civil war and regional war, everybody is waking up. But after this, we go back to sleep. The whole region is poor. We are the most endowed with resources. But with all our youth keep traveling, we are all desperate. We leave and we never want to go back. Because we just are not nationalists, you understand? So we have the ideas, we have uh, the judicial. Why is it that the, the, the speaker, David, he talked about the judiciary. Why is it that those judges do not have a conscience? Because they're not thinking of the country. It's all about tribe. And I, I'm sad to say, it seems that people of my kind from that part of the, of the world, you see, tribalism, it's so strong in us that we just can't get past it. So that's why I me, I'm for... Well, we have to try. Uh, we'll have to... Well, Look, GD, we'll have to try and get past it. Because if we begin a process where every tribe in Africa has a country, a state, a separate state, with borders and armies and foreign embassies to manipulate them. This will be a disaster for Africa. That's all I'm saying. I don't dispute the point. I'm not qualified to dispute the points that you are making uh, about tribalism, the Igbo people, and I'm not an expert on that. What I am an expert on is this, that unity is strength, that division is weakness, that united we stand, divided we fall, our tried and trusted principles of mine, because of my trade union background, because of my a political ideology, I believe in these things. It doesn't mean that if we're united, there will be no longer any problems. It doesn't mean that if we are united, that we will always behave fairly. But it means if we descend into a vortex of tribal division, of breaking up one African country after another based on tribalism every problem we do have will be much worse and many new problems will proliferate and I promise you this because I am an expert on this the French would love it the British would love it the Americans would love it imperialism would love it if it could get to work on 500 new countries, turning them one against the other, deepening the divisions that undoubtedly exist 
between them. That would be heaven for them. It would be a kind of bonanza for them. They'd never be done exploiting you still further. What I am an expert on, Chidi, is this. Only if the African people can come together, starting now in West Africa, until, in this case, the colonial power France, to get the hell out, to keep your paltry development aid, to forget about the idea that you can power yourself at our expense while we live in darkness and penury. You live as a superpower, as a nuclear-armed superpower with uh, veto vote and power in the United Nations. While we remain poor, you are rich. Forget about that. If the African people of West Africa can come together and at least say that, you will have struck a blow for all of the people of all of the tribes of West Africa. Think about that. Because the real division in the world, I promise you, it's not between the Ibus and others in Nigeria. The real division in the world is between the haves and the have-nots. The haves and their have-yachts. The real division in the world is between the countries that are quaffing champagne while people in West Africa don't even have clean water. As Thomas Sankara pointed out, we can choose between champagne for some or clean water for everyone. That's the real division in this world. I'm not making light of the feeling, I called it national, you call it tribal, uh, of the people, the Ibu people, of the Biafran people or other. I'm not making light of that. I know that some people, not I, uh, some people feel these identities keenly. I do not. I know as a Scotsman that the English are not my enemy. And I know that by becoming an independent state of Scotland, our problems will not be resolved. New problems will emerge and old problems will be exacerbated, intensified, multiplied. That's why I'm against nationalism, or as you put it, tribalism, I'm against it because no problem will be resolved by it, but new problems will be multiplied as a result of it. I have gone on too long. 17,961 people voted, and they voted that Donald Trump will fight the next election 38, 43, 33, 35 from a prison cell. But a clear majority thought that he will fight the election, but it won't be from a prison cell. 62, 57, 67, 65. Thank you for all of those who voted. Thank you all of those who called the show but didn't get through. Thank you 
all of those who watch the show live, and I merely ask you to make it spread, proliferate. Tell as many people as possible about what you saw and heard here this evening on the mother of all talk shows. Encouraging them to catch up on the live stream and on the clips that will follow. Thank you very much indeed for being with me this evening.